Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. With me as we get into God's Word. Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 32. Let's all stand as we read God's Word, Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 32. The Holy Spirit's sister, John Mark, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Now, verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must also be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many." And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of the bystander effect? bystander effect. It's a phenomena in which it's been kind of a, a phenomena that it's kind of more recent, but it's really, it's when you see that people are actually less likely to help someone in an emergency because they see other people around. In other words, if you see something bad happening and you see that there are other people around In your mind, you think, well, they're going to help them, and so you don't think it's your responsibility to help them because there's someone else out to help. The problem is, is that 
It's a groupthink thing. And so everybody thinks that somebody else is going to help the other person. And the result is, is that the person in the crisis situation, the person in the emergency situation doesn't get any help at all. And, and the weird thing in our day is that we'll have people in crisis situations. They're getting mugged. Someone's beating someone up. And what we do in our days, we take our phone out and film it and then we move on, right? It's a bystander effect. The Apostle John talks about the bystander effect in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, he says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in truth. In other words, in the church today, we need a little less talk and a lot more action. Now, where did John get this from? Where did John get this idea that if, if you've got something and you, can, and you see someone in need and you're supposed to help them and that, that's what the Christianity really is all about, well, where did he get that from? Well, he got that from what we just read. We, we, he got that from personal experience with Jesus. See, over the past three chapters, we've been walking with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's having all kinds of interactions with people. He's interacting with his enemies. He's interacting with people that are in crisis. And he's interacting with his disciples. And, and the last encounter we saw last week is that Jesus uh, had, a, had an interaction with a, a guy that was rich, and he was young, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he, he, on the surface, seemed to have absolutely everything put together. He's somebody that all of you would probably want in your life, in, in your church, and on your team. And, and yet... Even though he had everything, he was blind to his need for Jesus. And so from that moment, Jesus then has two other interactions. And it's important that, James, that, John, that, uh, that Mark lets us know that there are three different sons. You have two sons of a guy named Zebedee and one son of a guy named Timaeus. And the interesting thing is that all three of these men had sight issues. They were to some degree blind. The sons of Zebedee were, were blind partially to who Jesus was, and the son of Timaeus was blind physically. And so what you see as we end this little part of Mark's gospel is that Mark is going to bring these two interactions together to teach us what it means to be truly loved by Jesus and to love like Jesus. And what we're going to learn today is that being loved by Jesus and loving like Jesus means that we don't seek our own glory and we do not pass by others in need. So let's just unpack that. Number one, we see the first sons, the sons of Zebedee, and, and what they desired was glory. In verse 32, we said that, that they were on the road. The word road here is found all throughout Mark's gospel. It's the word hodos, and it means, in Mark's gospel, it's the road that ultimately leads to Jerusalem. And so now, literally, they are on the road. Uh, they've left Galilee. They're in Judea, and they are going to go through Jericho and then take the Jericho road some 18 miles up into the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus is walking with his disciples, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in his entourage and people that were headed to the Passover celebration in the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus was going there with his disciples, he was going to be the ultimate Passover, that Jesus, the son of God, the son of man would die for the sins of his people. 
And so as Jesus has done this, this is now the third opportunity that Jesus has told his disciples that I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and three days later I'm going to rise again on this. Every time that the disciples heard this from Jesus, they said something really dumb. And so to keep the pattern going, we see that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, say something really dumb. Now, these guys were fishermen. They were fishermen from Galilee. They were a part of the inner circle. They were there at the transfiguration. And they were also affectionately known as the sons of thunder because uh, they were pretty hot-headed at times. And so as they were walking with Jesus, they, they came to Jesus with this, with this question. And the question before the question was this. Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. Now, basically, they wanted a commitment from Jesus before they asked Jesus the question. How many of your kids have ever done that? (laughs) Daddy, I need you. You love me, right? Yes. You do anything for me? Yes. Would you commit to doing what I'm going to ask you before I ask you? No. (laughs) Right? Amen? Don't don't be dumb, parents. Don't be dumb. Matter of fact, the default mode of all parenting should be no. (laughs) Right? Man, we're going to have church in a minute. So before, see, Jesus isn't dumb. And so Jesus, before he commits to doing whatever they ask, says to them this, what do you want me to do for you? Now, again, this is the third time these knuckleheads have heard Jesus talk about his imminent death and his resurrection. And they have the courage to come up to Jesus. And here's their question. Oh, Jesus, would you grant me and my brother to sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. In other words, Jesus, we want to go ahead and call dibs now. We want to be your two senior vice presidents in heaven. I mean, are you, are you serious, James and John? The irony or the funnier thing is that if you read Matthew's account of this situation, and, and, and listen, when you read the Gospels, you have four witnesses to the story and person of Jesus. They don't contradict each other. They complete the story. And what we find in Matthew's account is that actually it was James and John with their mama. Mama Zebedee is actually the one who asked a question. Because mama wanted to make sure that her baby's got a prime spot in heaven. Like all good mamas do, right? Mama's boys. And so Jesus looks at mama and looks at James and John sitting there with sheepish grins on their face and says, you don't know what you're asking. Now, Jesus isn't upset, but he, but he does give them a gentle rebuke because he's saying, you guys are short-sighted. You are, you're, 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 you're myopic, you, you're ignorant, you're, you're arrogant, and, and you're, not, you're, you're not thinking of reality. You're just thinking of the here and now. You're blind to what you're asking for. You, you, you don't see what's coming. You don't know what's coming. Because here's what they didn't understand. See, Jesus was not a king coming to conquer Jerusalem and take a crown. Jesus was a servant king who was coming to take his cross because his cross was our cross. And so he says, you, you, you guys don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? Now, when you drink from a cup, you're taking something in yourself. And he says, are you, are you able to be baptized with my baptism? And, and his baptism was a baptism of suffering. That's something you're immersed in. And so Jesus says, listen, you're looking for glory, but you don't understand that suffering comes before glory. For you to have a resurrection, there has to be a crucifixion. 
For you to have a crown, there has to be a cross. And so he looks at these guys and says, okay, you want the glory. Well, are you going to suffer with me? And what did they all say? What did James and John say? Yeah, no problem. Yet what happens when Jesus gets arrested? They all take off. They run, they run tail, right? They're all scared. They're all chesty until something bad happens. Like some sports fans I know. All chesty. Them Tennessee fans, man, they're all chesty till they get beat. Because they've been to one. Anyway, we'll just hush about that. That one's for you, brother. I got a, I got a Tennessee fan in the room. We're going to have a time of repentance in a little bit. Amen. So, so, so James and John here, they, 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 listen, it's the same, same song, but the second verse of stupid. That's just basically what happened. And so when the 10 heard it, they got mad. Now, why do you think they got mad? They got mad because they weren't smart enough to ask Jesus that before the, before James and John did. And so now they're in this argument and this is the same argument that they had in chapter nine, because each of these men were, were chasing after greatness. And they were doing it in very self-centered and self-serving ways. And so Jesus calls them together in verse 42. The disciples were tearing each other apart. I mean, they're like, listen, most people are like crabs. You know, in a crab bucket, you don't have to put a top on a crab bucket because once one crab starts climbing, the other crabs pull him down. It's a lot like a church, a lot like life, a lot like politics. Everybody just pulling against each other. And so Jesus pulls them together because he recognized their problem. See, these guys wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be appreciated. They wanted to be popular. They wanted to be powerful. And Jesus does not rebuke them. He redefines to them what greatness and glory are all about. And so he says in verse 43, he says, well, you know how the Gentiles operate. You know how the Romans operate. Uh, You know about how the world is. There are people who love authority and they love to flaunt their authority. And there are people who love to make sure that you understand your position in life. And they love to lead from their position, not from a relationship. And they, they look at you and they go, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, and, and, and look at who I am. And, and you know how that is. You know how the world operates. But here's what Jesus says. That should not be so among you. It's not the way of Christ. That my followers do not seek to be served, but should seek to serve other people. Because he says, whoever would be great must be servant. One commentator said this, true greatness is not about how high you can climb as you step on and over as many people as possible. True greatness is about how low you can go in serving as many people that you can. So what what is this all about? Well, here's the reality. Reality is that following Jesus requires that we suffer like Jesus. Now, you may not see that on Instagram. That may not be a popular reel. Because most of us, if we're honest, we want to avoid suffering. I mean, if I went out and said, how many of you like to suffer? Raise your hand. Well, I mean, if you did, we're going to pray for you at the end of this thing, right? Like we, we are heavily invested in our own personal comfort. I mean, we, we all want glory, but we want it without sacrifice. And yet Jesus is, every time Jesus calls anyone to anything, he's very upfront about what it means to follow him. Because every time you follow Jesus, it comes at a cost. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs. And and to share in the master's reward means that you're going to share in his suffering. To to follow Jesus, it's going to require you to risk your ego and your bank account 
and your time and your personal comfort and your own personal desires. And, and here's what, here, listen, our idols, our addictions are exposed, will be exposed, have been exposed as we follow Jesus. You know, I, I didn't, I shared this with somebody the other day. I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. Anybody else? I really didn't realize how really selfish I was till I had kids. Because God gives you a spouse to sanctify you and he gives your kids to make you poor. <laughs> and so, as you get holier with your spouse and broker with your kids, you just look up to Jesus, right? And it exposes just the stuff in your life. Well, listen, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I'm exposed that I got issues. Anybody else in the room got issues? Say amen if you got issues. Amen. Amen. And if somebody sitting next to you didn't, have, didn't say amen, they really got issues, all right? See, the greatest fear of an approval addict is rejection. The, the greatest fear of a power addict is humiliation. The greatest fear of a comfort addict is suffering. And the greatest fear of a control addict is uncertainty. And when you follow Jesus, you will be rejected, you will be humiliated, you will suffer, and things will not always be certain here on earth. But suffering Jesus, suffering for Jesus is the rule, not the exception. You know, I'm, I'm around a lot of people around the world, by God's grace, have been given those opportunities. And I, and I heard a few months ago about three particular people who are in uh, the desert area in northern Africa. One particular young man is a guy by the name of Amos. Amos uh, grew up in a very uh, well-to-do family. Uh, he grew up Muslim. Uh, he could have uh, pursued a life of wealth and a life of success. And yet somehow, by God's grace, he became a believer of Jesus. And he chose, rather than to follow his family business that would have led him to wealth and success, he felt God calling him to move from the city and to reach goat herders in Northern Africa for Jesus, Amos. It's a lady by the name of Monica who grew up in a Muslim home, became a Christian, her family became Christians. She left her village with another lady to do gospel storying to other women in that village. And she came back and found all of her family was murdered because they became Christians. And guess what she's doing? She's now going to village to village to village sharing the love of Jesus. Let me tell you about Jabez, who was a respected leader, Muslim leader in the Horn of Africa. By God's grace, he received a dream and a missionary met him and shared the gospel with him. And Jabez became a Christian and he got so involved in the movement in the Horn of Africa that he lent his voice to the Jesus film to do translation. And he lent his voice to the audio Bible in, in the language that was of the people. And when the people in his area found out that it was him on that audio, he lost his job, he lost his house, and he lost his standing in the community. Why? Because suffering for Jesus is the rule, not the exception. And Jesus says to James and John, you want glory, but it don't work the way you think. You're blind. So the sons of Zebedee, they desired 
glory, but the son of Timaeus, he begged for mercy. Verse 46. And so Jesus has just had this conversation with James and John. They have gone through the city of Jericho, not the old Jericho that was defeated by Joshua, but this is the new Jericho, still thousands of years old, but it's the new Jericho. Okay. And so they've now gone through the city of Jerusalem or Jericho. They're now going through the outskirts of town and the outskirts of town towards Jerusalem would be a group of beggars. Now, the reason why they would be on there on the outskirts of town on the road is because there would be thousands of people this time of year during the Passover because they would all make this journey up to Jerusalem. And so they were living on the mercy of those travelers who went through. So they strategically pushed themselves, positioned themselves in a place where they would get the most exposure. And so one of the people that was on the wayside there outside of Jericho was a guy by the name of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar. Being blind and a beggar would be making, would make him one of the most lowest and most marginalized people in society. He would be the least, the left out, the leftover and forgotten. Here, we're told that his name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Now, when you read that, if you were reading it in, in Greek, it would, it, would, it, would look, it would look very similar. But if you really read it in Aramaic, it would look extremely similar. Here's basically how it goes. It would be Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. It's kind of like Amadeus, Amadeus, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. And, and if you look at the Greek... Timaeus means one thing, but, but in this day, in Jesus's day, it, it was, this name would be, have been in the Aramaic, more than likely. And so his name would have been Bartimaeus, son of Bar-Tamai. And so it would be actually Bartimai, Bartimai. Now we say, why does this matter? Why does his daddy's name mean anything? Because it meant a lot. Tamai in the Aramaic meant this, stay with me, defiled, unclean, polluted. So this blind beggar was named after his dad and his name would have literally been the son of filth. You know, we live in a world today full of people like Bartimaeus. 70, pardon me, 736 million people live in extreme poverty and earn less than $2 a day. Over 2 billion, 2.5 billion people live on less than $5 a day. Think of how much you spend at Starbucks just to get flavored water, Kool-Aid, from Starbucks that they say is dragon fruit. I mean, I, I'm still looking for the Kool-Aid dude. You remember the big Kool-Aid dude? That's what I think that stuff is. Amen, can I get a witness on that one? Anybody wanna testify? What used to be 10 cents is now 10 bucks, all right? One out of, tw out of, one out of every 27 children in this world die before the age of five because of malnutrition and preventable diseases because of extreme poverty. This is why our church partners with entities like Compassion International who release people from poverty, children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And so Bartimaeus is here. The son of Felf is on the side of the road and he heard because he couldn't see that Jesus was walking by. Someone told him, hey, Jesus is walking by, Jesus of Nazareth. Now this guy couldn't physically see him, but he spiritually saw him and he began to cry out, son of David, have mercy. 
mercy on me. Now we read that and we're like, oh, okay. Son of David was actually a symbolic phrase that was calling Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. Now, why would he stop what he was doing? Why would he stop his business of, of that? This was his moment. There was a big entourage. He, he could have got all kinds of coins and, and different things. He could have got mercy and money from people. Why did he stop what he was doing to cry out to Jesus? Because he knew who Jesus was and he knew what he had, what his biggest problem was. See, he knew who Jesus was and he knew what his need was. And the interesting thing is that in this point in Mark, no one else so far has been able to perceive so much about Jesus with so little data. He's the first person in the book of Mark that calls Jesus the son of David. And the reason why is because he recognized his need and he saw that Jesus was the only one who could meet his need. And so he's been waiting for years for something to happen in his life. And so, so Bartimaeus is sitting there and he's going nutso. He's saying, Jesus, son of David, or son of, son of David, have mercy on me. And so the disciples in the crowd where they were, hush, shut up, Bart. Nobody cares about you, you blind beggar bum. But this dude wouldn't be silenced. He wouldn't back up and he wouldn't shut up. He, he kept yelling all the more. The word crying out is he screamed. Why? Because he's desperate. He's not discouraged by the discouragers. Public shaming isn't going to do anything to him. He's not worried about his status. He needs mercy because he knew he was a beggar. And so Jesus hears the scream of Bartimaeus and stops in his tracks. You know, it's interesting that it seems here that Jesus didn't hear his first cries, but he heard his screams. You know, sometimes you cry out to Jesus and you're, you're waiting for God to do something. You're asking God to do something, but, but it doesn't, doesn't happen. But then when you get and you basically scream out for mercy, God moves. Because the scream for mercy, I think, and as you find in the Gospels, is the sweetest sound to Jesus' ears. And so Jesus said to the crowd who just told him to be quiet, he, he, he says, listen, bring, bring him here. I love Jesus. The people that told this guy to shut up are now told to call the guy up. And then the phone rang. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. So whoever, whoever had their phone ring in it, sorry. <laughs> my, my ADHD kicked in for a second. And so they, they, look, at, they look at Bartimaeus and, and they say, well, listen, dude, your screaming worked here. Jesus is calling, come, come on. And so you read verse 50 and the dude springs up. And he throws off his cloak. Now we read that and we're like, okay, what is this? That was actually a big deal because the cloak was the most valuable possession the man had. The cloak was his blanket. The cloak was his jacket. The cloak was his way of life. It was his tin can. It is, is how he collected money from people. He was blind. And so he would put his cloak out and people would throw money. And then he would bring the cloak in and, and kind of go through it. It was his home. It was his protection when he felt bad, when he felt that others were looking at him or, or when he just needed to get away from everybody, he would cover himself with that. And so this cloak, cloak was the man's most valuable possession. It was his way of life. And when Jesus called his name and called him to come, he threw off his old way of life to come to Jesus. And it was before Jesus ever did anything for him. And why did he throw it off? Because he didn't want anything to hinder him from getting to Jesus. 
He threw the cloak of blindness off so that he could obey the call of Jesus. That's something the rich young ruler wouldn't do. He held on when this man let go. What are you holding on to that's keeping you from Jesus? And so he comes to Jesus. Jesus looks at this man and says, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It's the same question he asked James and John. And the man looks at him and says, in our translation is this rabbi. In the Greek, it should, it's translated rabboni. Rabbi just means teacher. Rabboni means master. It means Lord. This was this man's personal confession of faith. He says, you are my Lord. And he says, Lord, master, let me see again. I just want to see again. James and John wanted glory because they were power hungry. Bart just wanted to see again. You know how much we take our eyesight for granted? And this man begs for it to be restored. And so verse 52, Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word made well is the Greek word sozo. It's, we get our word save. He says, go your way. Your faith has saved you. And the Bible says immediately he recovered his sight. And so this man is physically healed. He could see. Once I was blind, but now I could see. You opened the eyes of the blind. It's amazing. It's incredible. You know, there's a prophecy about that in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16. He says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In the past that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places in level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. This man got that. And then the Bible says that he followed him on the way. Now, literally, what that means is that as soon as Bartimaeus could see, he followed Jesus where he was going. Where was Jesus going? He was going to Jerusalem. What was going to happen in Jerusalem? He was going to die on the cross. And the interesting thing, think about this. The one on the side of the road is now a part of the entourage. The one that was just criticized is now a part of the crew. Could you imagine the, the rough group that Jesus had going to Jerusalem? I mean, you had, you had former prostitutes, you had crackheads, knuckleheads, meatheads, deadheads. You had all these people just following Jesus. You had a guy that was blind. He was on the side of the road. He stunk. He followed Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. But you go a little bit deeper. There's something that Mark is doing intentionally in the word, the way. Now, we're not doing Mandalorian talk here, but let's just look at the way. The way here is the Greek word hodas. Remember I said that earlier, that that's the same word that points to the road to Jerusalem, the road to the cross, the road to suffering. But this was Mark's subtle way of saying that Bart was a disciple of Jesus now. Because before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. And Jesus, after he had healed this man, said, sir, you can go your way. And Bart said, I'm going your way, Jesus. I don't want to go my way anymore. I want to go your way. One other side note for you Bible geeks in the room is that if you notice the rich young ruler that the world would have said is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, his, the rich young ruler's Instagram following would be in the millions, We don't even know his name. But this blind beggar 
we know his name. And why does it matter? Why would Mark intentionally put this dude's name in there? Because this dude was an eyewitness to the power of Jesus. Because this son of filth became a son of God because of the son of David. Jesus changed his life. Wow. Amen. So we saw three sons, but there's actually four sons in the story. The fourth son is the son of man. And this son of man came to say many. I mean, imagine you're James and John. You just kind of got a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, little bit of heat from everybody. I mean, you just imagine you just had this moment. People are staring like holes through the back of you because you just had the goal to ask to sit at the right hand and the left hand. And that's what everybody else was wanting. And so you're like ready to get Jerusalem. You're like, Hey dude, I know Bethany is, is up there. Lazarus and his sisters are there. We're going to have a good time. We're going to get some rest. It's going to be great. I can't wait to get out of here. I feel kind of weird. And then all of a sudden you're walking along, you're talking, you know, you're eating crow and, and all this, that and the other. And all of a sudden you just stop. And you say, well, what's going on? Some say, well, Jesus is healing some dude. And you're like, come on, man. Let's get this going. We gotta go to Jerusalem. Why, would, why in the world would Jesus stop? There's tons of beggars here. Why would he stop? Jesus told him why. Verse 45. He said, for the Son of Man. That's the title for God. The Son of Man, God came not to be served, but to serve. Most rulers got rich from the resources of the people they ruled over. Jesus said, listen, I am God and I am Lord over all, but I don't Lord it over all. I didn't come for what I could get from you. I came what I could do for you. Jesus deserved to be served, but his mission was not to be served. His mission was to serve those who didn't deserve it. One thing you'll see in the life of Jesus, Jesus was never drawn to the influential, never drawn to the powerful, never drawn to the wealthy, always drawn to the hopeless and the helpless. And why did he come? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And then by serving, he gave his life as a ransom for many. That is, he paid a ransom to release those who were in bondage to sin. He came and paid a debt that he didn't owe, that we owed because there was hell to pay, Jesus paid it. So you have the highest person taking the lowest place to serve, to rescue and to ransom the blind, the broken, and the hellbound. That's why we stopped, James and John. You all are wanting glory. There's the Lord of glory. And he didn't come to be served like you want to be served. No, he came to serve blind beggars like Bartimaeus. And what you don't realize, James and John, you're a blind beggar too. See, we serve others because Jesus has served us. The motivation for serving, the motivation for loving, the motivation for giving is because Jesus has served, loved, and gave to us. Jesus loved you enough to hear your cry for mercy, to save your soul from hell, and to give you a new life with him forever. How often do we forget that? You know, the irony is, is that the guy who couldn't physically see saw more spiritually than the disciples did. James and John, they asked for glory. Bartimaeus begs for mercy. 
And what we're going to see is that God the Father is going to ask Jesus to lay down his life. He's going to do it for you and for me. So let's end. Stay with me. We're almost done. So what did I say in the beginning is this, is that being loved by Jesus and loving like Jesus means that we do not seek our own glory and we do not pass by others in need. If you've heard me tell this story before, you've heard this story before, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about. In 1994, there was a guy named Kevin Carter. Kevin Carter received the Pulitzer Prize, one of the highest prizes for, for journalists, for photographers. And, and he got this Pulitzer Prize for his picture that he took of a Sudanese child as he was on his way to a food service center in Sudan. During, in 1994, there was a severe famine, this great oppression, genocide, evil. Sudan is still very broken. Kevin Carter, who grew up in a Christian home from South Africa, took a picture and became a feature piece in Time Magazine. And here's the, here's the photo. When that picture of a starving, emaciated child with a vulture looking at him was put out. The world was appalled. People now were aware of what was going on in Africa. And those days, they were on Instagram or Twitter. They're, back in those days, people read newspapers and magazines. I know it seems so far removed. This picture became very popular and people were, were writing Kevin, trying to find out some things. And so they, they would write him letters and say, oh, Kevin, this is a great picture. Thank you so much for exposing the world to the evils that are happening in Africa. Thank you so much for bringing awareness to the famine issue. And thank you so much for that. So the question we have is, Carter, is what, Kevin, is what, what happened to the child? How's the child? How's the child's family? What, what happened? Well, Kevin never answered any of these questions. The piece became so popular that, as I said, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Two months after he won that prestigious award, Kevin Carter, who was once a Christian but yet walked away from his faith, committed suicide. In his suicide note, here's what he said. He said, I'm very sorry about the child for the hours of getting there, the 20 minutes and setting up, and the time it took to get the perfect shot. When the picture was taken, I took my tripod and walked away. That child is dead. What did, what did John say in John, 1 John 3, 16? He said, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need and he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. Church today, I want to give you an opportunity to love indeed and in truth. There are these 
packets from Compassion. They're up in the front. They're in the back. And I want you in a moment to take this. I'm going to give you an opportunity. We're going to have an invitation in a moment. And during that invitation, I want you to worship the Lord. And one of the ways you can worship the Lord is by taking one of these packets. So I want you to take one. And I don't want you just to take one. I want you to take one and fill it out. And so once you pick the child or the children you want to release from poverty in the name of Jesus, then I want you to take the card out and I want you to take the back. It's perforated. And this is the child that my wife and I are going to sponsor and our family. She's five years old. We have the same birthday, February the 7th. She's been waiting 164 days for somebody to sponsor her. And so we're going to tear this off. We're going to fill out our information, which does include financial information. We're going to rip it off and we're going to give it, put it in one of the boxes or one of our compassion people from our church. And that's going to be our offering to the Lord today. That's going to be our act of worship. And so I want you to pray about it, but I also want you to do it. And so in a moment, I want to give you that opportunity. But before I do, I want to ask Dr. Vargas to come up here. Dr. Vargas is who you saw in the video. Would you give her a hand, church family? You know, reality is, is that these are not just packets. They're real people in real poverty who need a real savior. And sometimes you read this stuff, you know, ah, it's hocus pocus. There's probably like 50 guys in a back room and they're all making stuff up. No, these are real people. And here's a real witness of what God can do in a wonderful, brilliant person in Dr. Vargas. So Dr. Vargas, what does child sponsorship mean to the child? It means a lot. It means hope, future, and faith. It changes a life, a kid, when you are sponsored. So it matters a lot. Amen. Well, Dr. Vargas, would you pray for us today? Would you bow your heads and Dr. Vargas, would you lead us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we love you. And I thank for this amazing church that love your work. Jesus, we ask you open our eyes. We can see the poverty in the world, especially in the kids in Tanzania, that they are looking for your help, looking for your love. Please, God, open our eyes and we can see for others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Dr. Vargas. So we, we are about to sing. And so would you go ahead and stand? And while we're singing, we want you to worship the Lord. But if you feel led, we want you to come down and worship the Lord through adopting. So don't, don't leave yet. There, there are kids up here, over here, all in the back. Anyone that say church sponsored, these are the kids that we are specifically, as our part of our church, the center that we are a part of. So we want to encourage you to do that. Father, move your people to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to come now, come on. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.